This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. Uh, Jason, we're going to welcome to the show, first of all. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be back. Always a pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation. It's always good to get these legal updates on what's going on in the wonderful world of government contracting. Um, And I think today, I guess we're going to focus for a large part of the show on talking about Civil False Claims Act, um, recovery trends, where things are right now, and what um, you anticipate moving into 2021. Does that sound good? Sounds great. I love talking about the Civil False Claims Act. Okay. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 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 Yes. I don't know what to say. Uh, <laughs> misery loves company or I, uh, torture. You know, I it's, know. you know, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting topic. Yes, absolutely. Very, very important one. So, you know, first of all, I think one of the things that I've, I've heard you say recently is just, do you think that the, the, you know, the pace of civil false claims act um, recoveries trend, you know, issues is going to probably pick up in 2021, and I'd like to get your thoughts on why do you think that is. But first, let's just sort of set the stage. Where where are we right now, but the last two or three years in terms of recoveries and enforcement? Yeah, so it's it's been an interesting trend the last several years, and this will, you know, kind of talk where we've been and where we're headed. So the last several years, actually, recoveries have been trending downwards. There was a uh, false claims act recoveries overall, uh, had a very big year, over $6 billion worth of recoveries uh, back in 2014, uh, and uh, had another significant year, 2016, around $5 billion total recoveries. But since then, it has been trending downwards. Uh, and this last year, uh, fiscal year 2020, uh, total FCA uh, recoveries uh, totaled only $2.2 billion, and, and that's down 34% from just the prior year and the lowest recovery overall uh, since 2008, you know, and, and just so everybody knows, you know, civil false claims act, this is the government's principal, you know, fraud fighting tool, uh, both in the procurement and non-procurement uh, contacts. Uh, and these cases can be brought either by the government itself or by uh, key TAM relators often called whistleblowers. Um, and again, this has been t- lowest recovery overall in 12 years. Uh, recoveries uh, out relating to HHS, uh, so Health and Human Service, lowest, lowest since 2009. And DOD recoveries, the lowest since uh, 2014, only around 75 million uh, in recoveries uh, uh, relating to DOD. So kind of a, a very interesting trend these yeah. last several years. Well, uh, HHS, what are those recoveries focused in? Is that the 
healthcare programs. That, that, that's health. That, that's yeah. healthcare. Pro- which traditionally, that's you know that is a uh, uh, you know that that's where the most uh, false claims act activity is. It's with respect to Medicare, Medicaid. It's not procurement. Procurement is dwarfed uh, by healthcare related uh, issues. Uh, but the DOD, the DOD number would be almost entirely, if not if not entirely, you know, procurement related issues. And that leaves about another three hundred million, I think, from FY twenty. I think that's right. And so, and would that be mostly procurement as well? Yeah, that would probably yes. You know, so that would also li- mostly fall under procurement. Uh, so once you, once you're outside of HHS, you're looking at mostly procurement related uh, fraud. So. Wh- <laughs> That is significant. That's really you really are going back in time in certain, a certain, in a certain sense. When, and you think about how big the procurement budget or or yeah. spending has gotten over yes. the last in twelve years, or or so, or even six years from two thousand fourteen. Um, it would seem to me there'd be more opportunities for the Civil False Claims Act to be utilized. So this trend seems a bit in opposite it's, of it, the patterns. It, it, it's so, it, well, I think it is potentially explained, and this gets to why we think there's, we're looking, we're, we're on the verge of a change on these trends. You know, the, I mean, it really does reflect, uh, you know, the last administration had a very different approach to enforcement. Uh, I mean, I think it, it, you know, it's, it's just a fact that uh, the Trump administration, uh, you know, there were a number of positions, you know, within the Justice Department, you know, these, these cases, you know, if either brought by the Justice Department, or if they intervene in the case, if it's brought by a whistleblower, you know, these cases are, are uh, prosecuted by the Justice Department. You know, there were some key positions in justice that were just never filled. And, uh, you know, this, this, the last administration had a very light touch on enforcement issues, you know, had a, uh, and this, I mean, this is true of anytime you swing from a Republican to a Democratic administration, there's going to be a different philosophy uh, on enforcement of things like the False Claims Act. Um, And, you know, this last administration was particularly uh, light uh, on enforcement. And, uh, you know, I think that you're seeing, I think that uh, explains why we saw, you know, we saw a peak in 2016, right before the last, you know, the last presidential election. And then we saw, you know, a very steep decline over the, the, the following uh, several years. Uh, and now, uh, with a new administration, um, you know, we would expect to see a big change uh, in the Justice Department's approach to issues like this. I mean, enforcement generally uh, but in particular, on issues uh, uh, involving the False Claims Act. You know, how does that ripple down? Do you have a sense? Because when I think about Civil False Claims Act issues, I think about, you know, it's like in the schedules context, yes. and, you know, yes. where the IG ends up yep. going in and does yep. as a review. Maybe yep. they find something that's not necessarily yep. a whistleblower. Yep. How has, has, has that trickle down even across into the ig operations or not i I think i you know it's tough to say from the because a bit of this is from the outs of course from the outside looking in but you know it it, i think there's an overall uh you know the 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 enforcement community overall whether we're talking about the ig whether we're talking about dcaa you know the audit community whoever we're talking about 
I, th I think is going to feel in this new administration, you know, much more empowered than they did in the last, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent. I think that's just reality. So, uh, you know, with, and also it's going to come kind of come from the top, you know, uh, Merrick Garland, who's, uh, you know, looks to be our next uh, attorney general, you know, has been on the, you know, been on the DC circuit court of appeals for quite a while and has been involved in false claims at cases. And from what, you know, if you're, again, if you're reading tea leaves from when he's opined on false claims act issues, you know, he has a fairly broad view of, of the reach of the false claims act, uh, which is going to be different uh, from, you know, Bill Barr or any, you know, the, the, the prior uh, attorney general attorneys general under the, Trump administration. So I, I think that's going to, you know, it's going to pervade the Justice Department. And I think the uh, the enforcement community is going to feel much, like I said, much more empowered uh, to pursue aggressively uh, enforcement actions, uh, including False Claims Act cases. So, you know, I know historically there's been like observations with regard to the Civil False Claims Act and to the extent it um, can turn, you know, what would be a typical um, contract dispute into something much more. Um, is that kind of where you I, think things I, might be headed, I, I think especially given your description of the attorney general, the future attorney general sort of view of the statute? I think, I think that, I think that's a possibility. Uh, just a and, a and a greater willingness, you know. I mean, there's always been the issue of you know when you have an audit issue pop up and can you resolve it just through the contracting officer? Is a contracting officer going to feel, oh, I need to be you know ultra deferential to the auditors, you know, you know, look, you know, look, give more scrutiny, look under those rocks a little bit more. I think that's what's going to happen, which I think is going to lead. Uh, you know, to, to, to an uptick. And there's just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit, Roger. There's also just, you know, separate and apart from that, you know, there's just been some very, you know, you know kind of key compliance issues, you know, recently arise that I think we're going to kind of see a wave of those, which isn't dependent upon, you know, who's in charge in Washington, you know, who's in charge in the White House. I think there's just a number also of just kind of, you know, new compliance obligations, um, right. That we're going to that are going to prompt some false claims act activity. And one other thing, though, that I, I want to make just before we start talking about some of these substances. Well, we'll have to take a br the break oh. in about 30 seconds. So do you want right. to hold it or I'll hold it that. OK, it. so when we come back, we'll continue our discussion of a civil false claims act. Um, what we see is emerging trends, um, areas of potential enforcement. My guest today is Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Workmaster. Jason is with Mila Chevalier and is a Civil False Claims Act expert. Uh, and Jason, uh, I so rudely interrupted you at the end of the last segment, but we have to you know, we have to do business here. So. I understand. Um, so uh, please, um, you know, we, you were about to make a point about where we are in terms of the judges and 
the Biden administration and that sort of thing? Yeah. So, you know, as, as I was saying, I mean, the, yes, you know, the, the, the Biden, you know, the Biden team is going to be in charge over at the Justice Department. They may have this broader view of False Claims Act liability. Maybe, you know, I think there's at least a, there's a decent chance they will pursue cases under the previous administration would not have been pursued. But at the same time, you know, let's not lose sight of the fact the last administration appointed a lot of judges to a lot of courts. And so, you know, even though we may see just an uptick in enforcement activity because it's just more the philosophy of, of, of this new administration, you know, that's still going to be litigated in courts where there are a lot of Trump appointees. And, you know, the Trump appointees, uh, again, and this is, you know, this is true anytime, again, anytime you swing from a Republican to a Democratic administration, this tends to be the case. But you know, I think this is particularly true this time. Um, you know, the, the Trump appointees, the Republican appointees will tend to, by and large, you know, have a narrower view of the scope of the False Claims Act and how that factors in to how these cases get litigated uh, will be interesting to see how the effect that that will have on, you know, the Justice Department's willingness to settle. You know, if they're in front of a, a judge that's, you know, hostile uh, to expansive views of the False Claims Act, that could factor into uh, the settlement calculus. You know, and, and you know, putting aside even, even, even you know, uh, a lot of this, I think, we'll see play out in early motions practice in False Claims Act cases. You know, over the last several years, you know, several years, it's been a couple of years ago now, the, there was a significant court, uh, case from the Supreme Court, the Escobar decision which the Escobar case, uh, the Supreme Court uh, said, look, when you're assessing a False Claims Act case, you really have to take into account, you know, you have to look carefully at materiality. You know, does this alleged falsity, you know, this alleged lie, did it make a difference in how much the government actually paid? Did it make a difference? And they said, we got it. That's a searching inquiry. We need to look at that carefully. We need to look carefully at, you know, the Sienta requirement. Did the, did the contractor or the False Claims Act defendant, did they knowingly make the, the false representation? That kind of thing. And, you know, we've seen since Escobar, a lot of courts have taken that very much to heart and have applied Escobar fairly uh, 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 strongly to dismiss cases early on for, you know, for failing to even make out a, a cognizable False Claims Act case. So it'll be interesting to see if we see more of that uh, over the next couple of years as, you know, especially if we see more cases being brought and then that would should lead to more cases being decided and how that works out will be very interesting uh, to watch. Yeah, there's... Um... That, that's just a great point and and how the what the ramifications or the ripple effects of the changes in the AO you know, in the in the in the courts you know you read about that all the time right if you follow those sort of things but here from a government contracts perspective it it actually you can see it may make a difference in how you know how this, how the civil false claims act works, just the, the you know, all, all the workings around it in a certain sense. Absolutely, especially in the like that example you mentioned before, Roger. That example of, you know, well, isn't this just you know, where's that line between the the garden variety breach of contract yeah. and fraud? And you know, <laughs> I've been doing this now for about twenty years. 
I have not yet been able to figure out exactly where that line is. You can read all the False Claims Act cases from now until the end of time, and you will not find a bright line that tells you exactly where that is. And so, so that's I not that's you don't you, that's not you, you know it when you see it, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's about as good as the guidance you're going to get. Yeah, uh, uh, and so, you know, it's it's uh, that is, I think, where we're going to see the 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 back and forth uh, between a, a you know an, a, an executive branch that may be pushing harder on this stuff than the last administration, and a, a court system that is still going to be. You know, you know, lots of judges uh, put there by the last administration. So I, I think that's going to be going to be some very interesting back and forth on that over the next couple of years. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch how yeah. it all plays out. Because yeah. um, right, if you you don't you, if you're the Department of Justice and you have a particular view on something, regardless, and you know that the judge is on it, a judge on the you know hearing the case. Right. As a different view, you, what, right. the last thing you want is a decision. That's oh, that's exactly that's, right. And right. you don't know, and you know, and and for cases now for key tam cases, you know, that are brought by the whistle, well, a whistleblower, they're brought under seal, and the Justice Department investigates. You know, the Justice Department will know who the judge is you know, on those cases, right? The the but but for cases that the government's going to initiate on its own, you know, they'd have to initiate. You know, they don't know who the judge is going to be when they initiate the case. So you know, that could factor. You know, if you have a, 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 ma- a case, a false claim case that's brought by the government itself and they don't know who the judge is going to be, I could see that, you know, they, they file the case, the case gets assigned, oh, no, not him. And then that could prompt, you know, potentially some uh, settlement discussion. Let's turn to a little bit now to some of the areas sure. of potential enforcement. And I guess I'll start first with, can you talk a little bit, because r- the, the current you know, COVID relief packages and, you know, the support that's, um, you know, to help small businesses and, you know, and, and just the economy. Right. It, it is, does harken back to, um, you know, 2009, you know, the Great Recession. Yes. And, the, yes. and, so, and in that case, there was a whole infrastructure created to, yep. for oversight purposes yep. Yep. to monitor the spending of the money. Um, for infrastructure and things that were done, you know, what does the CARES Act or what what what's the COVID relief? Is this somewhat similar approach? Yeah, it's yeah, so similar, similar. Yeah, I am yeah. saying again. Yeah, so there's you know, so the CARES Act, you know, created uh, the payroll protection program, the PPP program, uh, for you know small businesses uh, to get loans uh, from the government uh, that. Uh, if certain criteria are met would be forgivable. And the, you know, the purpose, you know, payroll protection, the principal purpose, <laughs> it's too many P's. The, the, the purpose of this thing, you know, was to make sure that, you know, employees continue to get paid, even though the companies were taking a, you know, potentially a hit or a large hit uh, on revenue. So, um, you know, companies had to go in uh, that, you know, the qualified is small and there was some, you know, as long as you were under 500 or met a couple of, you know, one or uh, one or another test, you qualified as small, you put in your application. When you put in your application, you had to certify that you needed the loan given the current economic uncertainty. And, you know, there was a lot of discussion at the time. It was like, 
well, well I'm uncertain. How uncertain do I need to be? You know, right. uh, it's, 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 uh, that's kind of a gray, you know, kind of a gray area. Like, you know, so you know, a lot of discussion at the time, you know, how do you make that determination? You know, the, the statute itself self said that uh, unlike other uh, monies that are available, and it used to, you know, this was run through the small business administration. Unlike other small business loans, you didn't have to take into account, the statute expressly said, you don't have to take into account other sources of liquidity. But <laughs> that's what, you know, that's where we were. Uh, my God, it's been almost a year now, right? I mean, that was like last March. You know, so the loans, you know, the, the program was created, loan money was loaned. Um, and now, you know, folks have begun, you know, the, the forgiveness process has begun, you know, and, and the enforcement community, which has been, which, you know, the, the, the CARES Act is, is, you know, funding has been established for an IG uh, within the SBA uh, to uh, oversee, you know, all of this, you know, the, 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 you know, the loan applications, the, the forgiveness, uh, and any loan over $2 million is going to get audited. Right, right, right off the bat. So if you got over two million bucks, you're definitely getting audited. And what are they going to look for? Well, you know, it's classic. Anytime the government spends a lot of money, we saw this in, you, you mentioned 2009, we saw this in the Iraq war. You know, anytime there's some massive amount of spe- expenditure, well, the, the day after comes. And then the question is, well, was that money well spent? And, you know, the audit community is going to you know now dig back into these ppp loans and begin to you know to review them and there's going to be some issues i think so yeah when we come back we're up on the break when we come back we'll start let's go through some of the issues i think you identified one off the top like did you really need the loan i guess but i'm sure there's other ones as well so there are so we're up on the break uh my guest today is Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. And uh, Jason, when we took the break, um, you were about to walk through some of the key issues, uh, oversight issues that you you potentially yep. people could potentially see related to the paycheck protection program. Yeah. So, you know, so it, it does, it's, it ties back. A lot of it's going to tie back Roger, as you were suggesting to this question of, did you really need the loan? So, you know, when you, when you applied, you had to certify that you needed it. And the law is, I would say quite clear that if, when you're assessing whether that was a true statement or not, you look at the time the statement was made. And so, you know, you didn't know, it's, you shouldn't be looking at how did you actually do afterwards? You know, you should just be focused on, you know, what did you know at the time and what was reasonable for you to think about the future? All right. So now that's when you applied for the loan. And potentially an important practical point here as well is, you know, when you're talking now, anything over 2 million is going to get audited. However, you know, if you decide if an entity decides not to seek forgiveness, decides simply to repay the money, you know, plus the little bit of interest on top of it, I would say your, your practical chance, the practical chance that you're going to find yourself, you know, in the, in the False Claims Act hot soup is very low because, you know, in that instance where you're repaying the principal, you know, it'd be very difficult for the government to come up with a damages theory there. 
that would, you because know, again, I mean, when you when the government pursues false claims that cases, they're trying to recover money, you know, that suppose you know allegedly was you know improperly paid to the defendant. You know, here if you're not seeking forgiveness, you're going to repay the money, albeit over time. So I, I mean, I would argue very strongly if the government were to pursue a false claims that case against an entity that didn't seek forgiveness. I say, well, look, at most your, your damages are some interest. I don't anticipate us seeing a lot of false claims activity there. Where it would be is when you apply for forgiveness, you have to certify that you actually used the money for the enumerated purposes. Like I said, mostly payroll. Now, I think that's where the audit community is going to dig in hard. because, And I think what they'll do, I think they will go to your bottom line. And say, okay, let's look at your bottom line. How much money did you have you know, left over after you paid all your people? Oh, well, you still have, you know, say you got a $2 million loan. Let's say they go look at your bank account and you have $4 million in it. I could see the audit community saying, well, if you still, if you have that much money, because money is fungible. Once you got the money, you know, how you track whether you use that pot of money to pay your people. Because again, what is the certification? The certification is I use the loan money to pay payroll. Well, what if you had a revenue stream coming in that covered your payroll? How do you go about, ma- and, and how do you go about making that determination that you actually use the, the, the loan proceeds for the enumerated purposes? That's where I think we're going to see a lot of questions. So what are people doing? Are they creating separate accounts or like blowing off that money and using it for, and uh, it seems you have to make a, uh, you have a document, you got to create a record. You got to create a record, but but regardless of the record you create, let's say you do create the separate account and you only pay, you only pay payroll out of that account. Well, then you have some other account over here where you're, you know, let's say you're making revenue, right. Mm -hmm. And you're putting your revenue over in this account. The auditors are going to look at both accounts because, again, money is fungible. This is especially going to come up, and we've, we've, we've seen this come up. If you're a government contractor that got a PPP loan, let's say you have cost reimbursement contracts where you, you know, and let's say that you continue to perform your cost reimbursement contracts. So you're billing your labor costs to the government and being, presumably being reimbursed for it. If those are the facts... You know, how, you know, thinking through how you would then certify that you, you didn't use that money to pay your people, you, you use the PPP money to pay your people, that could be very tricky. So, you know, that's another area, you know, where you need to be, where we're counseling folks to be careful, because what we're hearing out of the audit community is what they're, what they're focused on in this is double dipping. So if, if you have cost reimbursement vehicles, or if you have other, you know, if, if there's an argument to be made by the auditors that you had enough revenue to cover payroll and you didn't need to use the uh, PPP money, that's, I think that's where the action's going to be. Yeah, I, I get the double dipping, you know, you think DOD's paying cost reimbursement contract, right. they've got a loan for the money. I assume it would be okay if you have that contract and those people are getting paid, you know, or they're reimbursed for the their cost for the cost company's cost but there's other employees over here working other, in other areas yes. you could use the money there you use it right? over there yeah so it's, it's you know so this is really we're, we're we're counseling folks you know before you submit your loan forgiveness application you need to think through this stuff and you need to and you need to make sure 
you're talking to the right advisors, whether it's it's your lawyers with experience in this area or your, you know, your accountants with experience in this area, because, you know, how this money, how, how, what your books look like uh, could have a big impact when the auditors, you know, show up and start looking at this stuff. But, you know, again, you need what you, I think folks need to be prepared for is that race to the bottom line. You know, if that, if that's a healthy bottom line, just be prepared. Well, how would they look at things like if you have capital reserves or, I mean, you could, I mean, someone could theoretically, <laughs> you know, burn up all their money exactly. in order. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Which, which, and, and so what it's going to end up being, Roger, we, it's just, it's like ARA, it's like the Iraq war. It's a bit, I think the government having buyer's remorse, you know, so it's, but those are going to be the issues that, that end up, but I, I completely agree with you because I mean, the further you push this stuff, it's like, the whole point of the program from the beginning was to keep folks in business and keep people paid. That was the whole right. point. And so, you know, if for, and, and, and to, to that end, make the loan forgivable. If forgiveness is only going to occur, you know, if, you know, you barely eked by or, you know, or took a right. loss, that doesn't seem seems Quite, count, see, comes contrary to the whole point purpose, yeah. of of enacting the legislation in the, in the first place but right. you know we've seen this before the government you know engages in an activity and then it turns out yo well you made that much money oh well, you shouldn't have made that much money well so it, that's that's it, where it maybe the up. answer to that would be it worked it worked what we intended <laughs> to do <work. laughs> that, would, that would be it and yeah. that now and that one back to our you know biden trump you know, the, the Biden administration running the Justice Department, a lot of Trump appointees on the bench. That could be a place where I could see that kind of political divide making a difference. Yeah. Well, real quickly, we have um, another we got about two minutes left. Uh, the, the CARES Act, Section 3610. Yes. Can you briefly describe what that yeah. is and what the issues people need to think about? And that and that that is probably becoming of less and less uh, significance as we go further along, because 3610 was designed, you know, in the immediate response to the pandemic as things, you know, complete, you know, the initial lockdown, you couldn't get into, you know, your place of work, you couldn't get to the government site. 3610 was designed for the government to compensate contract for, for DOD to compensate uh, contractors whose workforce was idled. You know, they could not work. So if you had an idled workforce, 3610 enabled you to go to the, to, uh, the, the defense department and ask for reimbursement for those that for paid leave, including uh, sick time without, you know, without the government getting any consideration out of it, just giving you more money to cover uh, paid leave, uh, you know, that, you know, and of course that was all subject to appropriations and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we're now getting further and further away from that, but if you still are considering or have already submitted, you know, an R your request for, and this is the subject to the normal kind of request for equitable adjustment, you know, certified claims process that we're used to under, you know, the contract, uh, you know, uh, uh, the disputes clause. So if, if, if you're still in that situation or you have applied, you know, again, this is one of those areas. Think about what you're asking the government to do. You're asking the government to pay you for people not to work. Right. That is not something the government typically likes to do. And it is also the kind of thing auditors kind of goes against every fiber of their being. 
to say it's oh yes oh yeah you 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 people weren't working and we're paying you oh, we're good with that so again this is an area of heightened political sensitivity right. and so you know it behooves the contracting community to you know dot your i's cross your t's if you're going to seek that money and just you know make sure your people were idled for you know the the you know the, and there's enumerated reasons it had to be related to the pandemic you know the stop you know uh, stay at home orders that kind of stuff you need to make sure that you have that all documented you know, documented right. carefully right. because you know you don't want to be in the position of you know submitting a claim that is arguably false and then there's a whole bunch i mean if you submit a certified claim that turns out to be false you know, the government has the False Claims Act. The government also has a provision, the Contract Disputes Act, that you, you know, forfeit the claim and you actually owe them the the, the amount that you claimed. Right. So, you know, that uh, which uh, uh, you don't want to get in that position. So, again, just right. another COVID-related thing to be careful about. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. And we are at the break. So when we come back for the last segment, let's just – there's lots of new and interesting compliance requirements out there that – uh, in government contracts that I know have potential civil false claims act implications. So when we come back, we'll talk about that. My guest today is Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron and you're listening to off the shelf on federal news network. Welcome back to off the shelf on federal news network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. We're talking about the Civil False Claims Act, uh, recent trends, with a prediction that, you know, you can see the enforcement uptick, you know, with the change in administrations. I think part of the reason, too, it seems to me, Jason, would be that there's new and evolving, you know, requirements, especially in the cyber area, information technology that are that have come into place and likely there'll be more, you know, post solar yep. winds yep. Uh, that we'll see, you know, in terms of contractor obligations and areas where they're going to have to, you know, basically a new performance requirements across the board. Um, yep. That may not be the purpose of the contract, but there are things you have to have in place. And so yep. the first one I want to mention um, or get your thoughts on is section 889, uh, yes. those regulations and that's the prohibition on selling Huawei and some other companies equipment to the government. But, uh, and I think that's fairly straightforward. Maybe not. You know, there's uh, you're the, you're the lawyer here. You, I'm sure there's <laughs> going to be uh, some, something gray there as well. But, and then the, the more, I think the much more challenging one is, you know, you, you, you can't use, uh, or the government can't contract with a company yeah. that uses uh, yeah. Huawei or some other prohibited uh, Chinese companies' equipment in their operations. Yeah. Just go, yeah. So, so yes, yeah, so, I mean that one. I just, you know, again, I think this would go into the bucket of regardless of who's in the White House. You know, the I don't the, the Huawei stuff. You know, when when uh, uh, the pandemic first started and everything was shutting down. You know, we were back, you know, February, March, April of last year, where the prohibition you were just mentioning, Roger, which is, I agree with you, the, the more significant of the two, you know, the government's prohibited from contracting with an entity that uses the prohibited telecommunications equipment, Huawei and other companies. 
you know, there was, you know, the counter community was practically begging Congress, please, please postpone this thing. Don't let this, because it was scheduled to go into effect last August. Please don't, please don't make this happen. And it, they, it fell on deaf ears and it went ahead into effect in August of last year. I don't see that. that that's not going to change. It's not going away with the, the new administration. And so it's going to be here to stay. So, you know, the, the, the issue with 889, uh, you know, as you're, as if you're a contractor, you know, uh, there is, this is an interesting, 889 is interesting because especially, particularly with this, this, this inquiry as to, okay, you know, do I use the equipment? Do I use this stuff? You know, how, you know, th- there's actually a defined term. You have to conduct a quote unquote reasonable inquiry to determine your use. And the, the definition of reasonable inquiry expressly says you don't have to conduct either an internal or third party audit. And it's, you know, the, the reasonable inquiry is designed to get at information in your possession. And where the big action on all this has been, has been, you know, okay, do I, does that mean I don't have to ask my supply chain anything? You know, and folks have made, you know, folks have made different, you know, the, the, the folks have, have had to assess, you know, how much risk they're willing to live with. Are they willing to, you know, okay, well, it says no third party audit and it's information in my possession. So I'm not asking anybody anything, you know. Folks have had to kind of think, am I comfortable with that? Because, you know, thinking ahead of that False Claims Act, you know, potential liability, the way that would come into play is, you know, now there's all these, you know, reps, reps and certs that you as a contractor have to make. I have to check the box. I don't use it or I do use it. Um, and if you check the box, I don't use it. And someone comes along later and says, oh, yeah, that was a lie. You checked the wrong box. You know, the, the, the thing that uh, from, from my perspective and working with contractors on this side of the bar, the thing that's scary about 89 is the, the potentially massive universe of whistleblowers. Because if you look at, you know, think of like your, you know, Roger, we, we were talking earlier before we got on, you know, kind of your traditional thing of GSA, you know, your traditional false claims that case involving the schedules program would have been, oh, you filled out that, you know, you, you put inaccurate wrong information in your CSP form. You know, that's kind of the classic or, you know, didn't comply with the price reductions clause. You know, that's the classic stuff. Well, to, to make those kind of allegations, the person, the whistleblower has to actually know something about your contracting processes and what you told GSA. And they have to under, have some understanding of, of it or else their complaint won't make any sense. Here, the whistle, the potential whistleblower, all they have to know is the guy down the hallway is using a Huawei phone. Right. The, the, the barrier to entry is a lot lower. Uh, for potential whistleblowers in the Huawei space than in anything else I can really think of, uh, maybe TAA, but it's, it's a very, very low threshold. And with the political sensitivity over using Huawei, ZTE, other, you know, these other identified companies, the political sensitivity around those issues, I just, I see that as a perfect storm of major false claims act activity over the next several years. I mean, we haven't, it hasn't, I, I, that, you know, we're always trying to think of what's the next big false claims act area. I really do think that one's it. Yeah. So do you see, you know, CMMC, the cyber? Uh, same, you, I mean, the same, it's the same stuff. I, I, I see it as very similar, you know, because again, with the CMMC and all the issues around cybersecurity, 
you know, all this going to take, and we've seen, we've seen some cases involving cybersecurity, you know, and, and there was one case out in California, not too terribly long ago, where the contractor, you know, tried to get out of the case early on a motion to dismiss. You know, when, when you, if, hey, if, you know, for contractors listening out there, if you ever find yourself in a false claims that case, that's what your lawyer is going to try to do. You know, you get sued and then they file a motion, hey, get rid of this case. It's worthless. We don't have to do anything more. We don't have to do discovery. We don't have to, you know, we don't have to get the expensive parts of the litigation. Well, that's what happened. And they made the argument, oh, this, this wasn't really, this wasn't the purpose of the contract. I mean, it's all the stuff you were saying before, you know, Roger, it's, it's, it's tangential. Court didn't buy it. Court said, no, this stuff's important. It's material. We're going to let the case go forward. I, I think there's a decent chance that'll be the response to Wall, the Huawei issues. I think that'll continue to be the response on cybersecurity and CMMC related issues. It's just, it's, it's, they're too uh, hot topic. And there, it's going to be an unusual judge, I think, who would say those are not material considerations. Right. Well, we've got a couple minutes left, sure. Jason. So I know you wanted to talk about DCMA's oh, yeah. effective pricing pilot. Yeah. Um, so what is it and why do people need to pay attention uh, to it? So, I mean, it's, it's one of those, I mean, this is, this, I put this in the oldie but goodie file. You know, I mean, you don't, don't forget about defective price. I mean, we've been talking about kind of, you know, 889, CMA, you know, this kind of newfangled, stuff that could be the potential basis for false claims act activity but still defective pricing is out there you know this follows on a couple year or two ago you know dcaa you know it you know it caught up on all of his incurred cost audits and was my speaking from my perspective was looking for okay well, what do we do now and so they decided <laughs> they decided defective pricing was going to be their next area of focus so they they announced that they were going to increase their defective pricing audit activity. Well, DCMA, Defense Contract Management Agency, has now stood up this kind of parallel uh, pilot team uh, that is also going to kind of centralize DCMA's approach to defective pricing. So I think what that's, you know, central, you know, kind of centralizing it, we're actually having a, I'm, a meeting, an ABA meeting uh, tomorrow on this, this subject where we're going to hear from the head of this new pilot team. Uh, but, you know, the, at a high level, you know, I think what that's going to mean is, you know, a, a, any t- you know, a renewed interest in this area, you know, TINA, you know, what we used to call TINA, the Truthful Cost and Pricing Disclosure Act, whatever we call it now, you know, but what I'll, I will always call TINA, you know, that's still seen out there, the requirement in certain circumstances to disclose certified cost of pricing data, you know, that remains a fertile ground for potential lawsuits you know, and, and, you know, DCMA, the more that they, you know, it's, you know, it's getting back to your question or your earlier example, Roger, you know, the line between kind of plain vanilla, oops, I didn't disclose everything I should have. And, ooh, I didn't disclose it. And that was fraudulent. Little can be a little blurry. So I would expect now that DCMA and DCA are both looking more at this, I would think we'll also see more false claims act activity. here. Right. Jason, it sounds like you're going to be busy. (laughs) (laughs) We shall see. (laughs) All right. Well, I want to thank my guest today, Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.
To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.